Uh, hi, I'm Kieran, and I'm your scripture reader for today. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kieran. Uh, please welcome Joel, who will be uh, preaching to us this morning. Joel just recovered from uh, COVID. Um, his mind and his hair is at 100%. Just got a haircut. Uh, but his throat is not exactly at 100%. So let's just please let him give him some encouragement as he speaks to us. Thank you, Hokan, for... And uh, thank you, everyone, for, <clears throat> for praying for us, praying for Z and his family and all of us uh, while we are away for, for a week. Um, <clears throat> really gl glad, I'm really glad to be you know, back here and to be worshipping with you guys and to have fellowship with you all, but most importantly, to have communion with the triune God. And, and as we come together to hear from God's word, and as we close out this sermon series, let us come to God and ask for his blessing as we hear from him. Father, you are the Lord God Almighty, and Father, we come before you in humility, Lord, because we recognize who you are, and recognize that you are the God of the universe. At the same time, you are our Heavenly Father, and that we can draw near to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done for us. And Father, I pray that indeed you humble each one of our hearts as we hear from your living word. And Father, your servant comes before you with all of his weaknesses, and Father, he prays that you indeed strengthen him and you uphold him as he preaches from your word, your life-giving word, and that in doing so, may your power be put on display and that your name be glorified, Lord. 
And so we entrust this time into our hands. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And so we arrive at the last section of the Gospel of John. Now you may recall how we ended last week. Jesus invited his disciples to have breakfast with him. And what we find in that scene was not just a very simple meal. It actually pointed to something profound. Jesus was inviting his disciples to a deep and intimate friendship. And his disciples, and this applies to us as well, we did not earn the right to become his friends. We are sinners at birth. And this puts us at enmity with God. So it's not because of how good we are that we are his friends, but rather Jesus has called us his friends and he, does, he has made us worthy through his death and his resurrection that is done for us. And it's by grace, by his grace, through faith in him, we are now reconciled to God and we are no longer his enemies. So this was where we left off last week. But brothers and sisters, reconciliation is not the end goal for the believer. Reconciliation marks the beginning of the Christian life. And what we are called to do for the rest of our lives is to follow Jesus. We are called to serve our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we conclude our time in the Gospel of John, we will find three things in our passage that we require as we serve the risen Christ. We need to adore, we need to focus, and we need to behold. Adore, focus, and behold. I'm so sorry, no alliterations here, but I hope that that will be helpful. Now, we come to our passage this morning, and here, after Jesus had breakfast with his disciples, we turn to a new scene. It's mainly an exchange between Jesus and Peter. Now, in all likelihood, what Peter did to Jesus was still fresh in his mind. Instead of being the faithful disciple that he claimed to be, Peter denied Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter capitulated to pressure and he betrayed Jesus in his moment of weakness. It's not difficult to try and imagine what Peter was feeling after all of that. Perhaps he was still feeling guilty because of what he did in betraying Jesus. And perhaps he felt disqualified to serve Jesus. Now, to borrow the language of baseball, when you get three strikes, you are out. Three strikes and you're out. It's time for you to sit on the sidelines while the next guy takes over. And perhaps this is how Peter is seeing things. He has struck out and all that's left for him is to watch from the sidelines. And yet as the story unfolds, we shall see that Jesus actually had more in store for Peter. So let's see how all of this unfolds. Let's begin by looking at verses 15 to 17. Now Jesus asked Peter several questions. And what did he ask him? Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Verse 16, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Verse 17, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it's essentially the same question that was asked three times. And how did Peter answer each time? He said this, Yes, Lord, 
you know that I love you. He said that three times. Now, I don't think it's an accident that Jesus asked Peter three times, which actually parallels the threefold denial of Peter. Now, also, back in verse 9 of chapter 21, John actually tells us that this whole conversation is taking place next to a charcoal fire. Now, remember back in John 18 when Jesus was arrested? Where was Peter at that moment when, he was, when Jesus was arrested? He was warming himself next to a charcoal fire. Coincidence? I don't think so. In fact, many scholars and many preachers have actually noticed these parallels and they think that they are intentional. Jesus was intentionally reminding Peter of his failure, of his betrayal. But at the same time, what Jesus is doing is showing him that his failure is not what defines him. Jesus actually has more in store for him. And the first step towards restoration lies in whether he's able to affirm Jesus' question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, what should we make of the love that Jesus is asking of right here? Now, if you read commentaries or if you listen to sermons on this passage, you might know of the observation that the word translated as love is actually not the same Greek word in these verses. In fact, there are two distinct words that are used here. And some have argued, based on this, that Jesus was actually concerned with the quality of Peter's love towards him. He was concerned with the quality. Now, personally, I'm actually not persuaded of this argument, mainly because of because the semantic range, or what we call the, the possible meanings of these words, actually they often overlap, and they are used interchangeably throughout the Gospel of John. So I don't actually think that the way to solve this is by saying that Jesus was actually concerned with the quality of Peter's love. Now if it's not this, then what is it? What is Jesus asking here? Now, I think that the emphasis here actually lies in what love for Jesus actually entails and what Jesus called Peter to do. Jesus is calling Peter to be a shepherd of his flock. Now, look at how Jesus responded to Peter's answers. He said this, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. All of these are synonymous metaphors related to the task of shepherding. And what these metaphors bring out is this, that the true measure of Peter's love for Jesus will be shown, will be demonstrated in his care for Christ's flock. The true measure of Peter's love for Jesus will be shown in his care for Christ's flock. And there's something here as well. Did you notice that Jesus actually addressed Peter as Simon, son of John? Isn't that very interesting? In fact, the only other time that Peter was called Simon, the son of John, in this whole book was back in chapter 1 when he first met Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 42, Jesus said to Peter, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. And that was when Jesus first called Peter to ministry. And right here in John chapter 21, Jesus is not just calling him to ministry, but he's restoring him to ministry. Peter, right now, is being restored 
to ministry and to shepherd Christ's flock. Now, there are very obvious implications for those who are called to be under shepherds, and I'm thinking of the elders of the church. But I think that there are broader applications for believers in general. As believers, our love for Jesus is measured by our care, by our concern, and by our service to God's people. If we claim to love Jesus, if we claim to adore Jesus, then do we adore his people? Do we love the body of Christ as well? And how is that looking for us here at One Covenant Church? Do we show love and concern for our fellow brothers and sisters? Are we involved in the life of the church community by serving one another? Are we doing all of that? Do we actually love the body of Christ? Do we love one another? Now, Jesus calls us to love his people, but we know that this is actually not easy to do. It's difficult to love Christians because we happen to be sinners at the same time. And this is what Martin Luther meant by his phrase, simo justus et peccator. It means that we, as believers, we are just and we are sinners at the same time. And because we are still sinners as believers, that is why it is actually very difficult to love fellow sinners. Now, I came across a comment by Dick Lucas, who was director at St. Helens in London for many years. And he said in kind of like a half-joking manner that the reason why Jesus asked Peter three times was perhaps less about the threefold parallel with his denial, but rather it's because Jesus knew how difficult it is to love his people, and it requires a threefold iteration on his part. He, need to, he needed to say it three times to get the point across to Peter to love his people. And we have to recognize this, that when sinners get together, conflicts are unavoidable. And perhaps you've encountered some of this difficulty when you have disagreements with fellow brothers and sisters and when you have arguments with one another. And yet it is our love for Jesus that actually enables and actually compels us to love and serve one another. So serving is actually very important. But at the same time, we must never lose sight of love for Jesus. Now notice what Jesus is actually not saying here. He didn't say to Peter, do you feed my lambs? Do you tend my sheep? And do you feed my sheep? If you did all of these things, it means that you love me. Did Jesus actually put things this way? No. What Jesus asked was whether Peter loved him. And if he did, then the necessary implication is that he will serve his flock. So the order is very, it's actually very important that we need to love Jesus, and loving Jesus actually precedes serving him. And it's important for us to grasp this so that we can actually avoid the trap of legalism, that we can avoid the trap of moralism. Now, as Christians, we actually know that we are called to serve. We are called to serve God and to serve one another. And yet, it can be easy for us to prioritize serving God to the exclusion of loving Him. And when we do so, when we so emphasize on serving God rather than saying that we should love Him, 
what this actually does is that it might actually give false assurance about our faith. We might think that we are growing spiritually just because we are serving in all of these different ministries in church. And in fact, we might even fool ourselves into thinking that we are true believers and the reality might be that we are actually not we might actually not be true believers, but because we're involved in so many ministries in church, that we actually fool ourselves into thinking that we are true believers. And yet, this is not the logic that Jesus is giving us here. You can be in ministry and not love Jesus at the same time. And that, brothers and sisters, is actually spiritually detrimental and it's a very sad plight for us to be in. But if you truly love Jesus, if you truly love him, then you will love, then you, you will serve his people. Now, brothers and sisters, there's always a need. There's always a need for us to serve in church. And there's always a need for people in the various ministries. But at the same time, unless we adore Christ, unless we love him, our acts of service will actually lead us to a very dangerous place. So we are called to adore Christ, and it's by implication of this fact that we are called to adore one another in Christ, that we are called to serve each other. So this is the first requirement for those who seek to serve Christ. But brothers and sisters, we are not only called to love Him. As we serve, we are also called to focus and to keep our eyes fixed on him. And this brings us to our second point. Now let's look at the verses that follow. In verses 18 to 19, Jesus tells Peter about the consequences of following him. So this is what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And John even tells us that this was said to show us the kind of death that Peter will undergo. It will be the kind of death which will glorify God. Now the phrase, stretch out your hands, was actually used in early Christian texts to refer to the crucifixion. In fact, early historians actually tell us that Peter died by being crucified as a martyr under the reign of Emperor Nero. And some have even reported that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't see himself as worthy of dying in the exact manner as Jesus did. But in any case, Jesus tells Peter to follow him and to serve his flock, even if it means a difficult and painful death for him. Now, what follows is actually an interesting conversation between Jesus and Peter. Now, look at verse 20 with me. Now, here Peter noticed the disciple whom Jesus loved, and this refers to the Apostle John, and most likely he was with them this whole time. Now, when Peter saw him, he decided to pose a question to Jesus. Look at verse 21. This is what Peter asked. Lord, what about this man? Pointing at John the Apostle, what about this man? Now try to put yourself in Peter's shoes and imagine how you would have responded to what Jesus said before this. You were just told 
to follow Jesus, and you were preempted beforehand that you would suffer, even to the point of being crucified. Now, with such a high cost for following Jesus, you might actually begin to wonder whether the same thing will happen to the other disciples as well. And it seems natural, I think, especially in the presence of all of those disciples, to ask the question whether they will be crucified as well, whether they will suffer the same fate as me. And particular, particularly, this disciple whom Jesus loved, will he suffer as well? Will he be crucified just like I will be crucified? How did Jesus respond to Peter? Now look at verse 22. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Now what is Jesus telling Peter? In short, what Jesus is saying is this. Whatever happens to John is none of your business. Whatever happens to John is none of your business. Just follow me. You know, why are you comparing yourself to John? You know, does it matter what happens to him? Does it matter if he remains alive and well when I come back again? Does it matter if everyone else is smooth sailing and doing well in their ministries? Why do you care about what, happen, what happens to other people? Keep your eyes fixed on me and follow me. Follow me. Notice how Jesus puts it to Peter the second time. He uses the emphatic, the second person pronoun and says this, you, Peter, you, you follow me and stop comparing yourself to other people. Now, unfortunately, that's not how we function as sinners. There's a propensity, there's an inclination in, our, in us to compare with other people just to see how we stack up against them. Now, psychologists, they call this social comparison, where we actually establish our worth and our identity through comparison, through comparing with other people. And psychologists tell us that we can further distinguish between two kinds of social comparisons. There's downward comparison, where you compare to someone that you consider as worse off than yourself. And there's upward comparison, where you compare to someone that you consider as better off. Now, I think we are actually more prone to downward comparisons because it actually gives us a sense of satisfaction. It gives us satisfaction when we do this, when we know that we are better than someone else at something that we have or something that we possess. There's a sense of achievement. There's a sense of superiority when we know that we are better than other people. And it actually gives a boost to our own self-esteem. Now, what's the problem here? What's the problem with this sort of comparison? The problem is that we allow the relative poverty of other people, we allow what they lack to become our sources of satisfaction, that we find satisfaction in this kind of comparison, even though it was never meant to be the case. Now, all of these things, all of these comparisons, they might actually provide some gratification, some momentary, some temporary gratification, but they can never truly and they can never fully satisfy us. In fact, this approach is actually a very self-centered approach of creating our own identities. 
And at the same time, what it does is that it actually creates a barrier. It creates a barrier that makes it more difficult to love the people that we are comparing to. Now, just imagine, if I'm comparing with someone and I say, ha, I have more money than this person, you know, I'm doing way better than this person. Do you actually think that will make it easier for you to love that person? Do you think that will make it easier for you to love him or her? No, it doesn't. It actually makes it way more difficult for you to love that person. And when we make this, this sort of comparisons, Jesus' question to Peter actually speaks to us in a very pointed way. What is that to you? you know, why are you comparing yourself with other people? And what are you trying to achieve by comparing with others? Now, there's downward comparison, but there are other people who might be more inclined towards upward comparison. And that might be a good thing, because you want to improve yourself and you want to make yourself better by looking to someone who's better than you. But it can be unhealthy as well. In fact, you know, as I was writing the sermon this past week, one of the things that I tried to do was to come up with alliterations for the sermon outline because apparently, you know, we are known for coming up with this kind of alliterations and our pastor, you know, he's very good at coming up with, you know, very catchy, you know, very memorable outlines. So what I tried to do, you know, earlier this week was, you know, I tried to you know, come up with something witty, you know, I tried to come up with something cool and something that people will actually remember. But obviously, I couldn't, you know, if you look at our bulletins, you look at the outline, you know that I, I failed. You know, maybe it was the COVID, you know, the brain fog because of COVID at work and therefore, you know, I cannot think straight and then I couldn't come up with um, a proper outline. And what I realized was that I was actually beating up myself. You know, I was beating myself for not being able to come up with an alliterated outline. You know, so I was thinking so hard, you know, you know, I was trying to do it, but I really couldn't and I was really beating myself. For that. And then, as I continued to meditate on this passage, you know, the passage this morning, I was actually deeply struck and I was deeply challenged by Jesus' words to Peter. And it's almost as if Jesus was saying to me through this passage, Joel, what is that to you? What is that to you if Pastor Z is able to write memorable sermon titles and sermon outlines. You know, what is that to you? What is that to you if your theological heroes like R.C. Sproul, like John Piper and Tim Keller and all of these people have successful ministries and have impacted hundreds and thousands of people? What is that to you? What is that to you if someone like John Calvin completed the first edition of his institutes at the age of 27 years old? What is that to you? What is that to you if other people have more fruitful ministries and they're more successful than you? What is that to you, Joel? What is that to you? Why are you comparing yourself with other people? What are you doing? Why are you doing all of that? All of that, what is happening to them is none of your business. All of that, whatever is happening to them is none of your business. You, Joel, you follow me. You follow me. Just be a faithful servant to the gifts. Be a faithful steward to the gift that God has given to you and be faithful in where He has placed you in. Just be faithful in where He has called you to be. And perhaps 
all of us, we need this constant reminder to focus on Jesus and to follow our Lord and Savior. So let us focus and let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we focus on Him, when we find our satisfaction, not in all of these people that we are comparing with, but we find our full satisfaction in Jesus, what will happen, I think, as we will notice, is that we'll become less and less inclined to compare with other people. And in doing so, what it does is that it actually becomes way less about us. It allows us, it frees us to love one another. You know, there's no longer this barrier of comparing with other people, but it frees us to love one another with the love of Christ. So let us focus and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Now finally, John tells us that we need to come face to face with true greatness. We need to behold the greatness of Jesus as we serve him. So we come to our final point, and this will be a short one. Now let's look at verses 24 to 25 together. Now this is what it says. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now we can read these verses, these last two verses very quickly and actually miss what is actually communicated here. Now notice that this sounds very familiar to John chapter 20 verse, verses 30 to 31 and yet very subtly different as well. John is not just saying that Jesus did so many things that were not recorded in the Gospel of John. Rather, he tells us that Jesus performed so many things, he said so many things that there's not even room in the whole world to record the words and the deeds of Jesus. Now, this might sound like exaggeration, it might sound like hyperbole on John's part, but what he's saying here is actually very significant. You see, when we read the Gospel of John, all 21 chapters of it, we find a remarkable record of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And yet everything that was written in the Gospel of John is but a small taste of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, you can combine everything from the four Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can combine all of these things, and what we have at the end of the day is but a mere teaser of what Jesus said and did. Now, we may think that we know a great deal about Jesus, but what John is telling us is that there is so much more that we don't actually know. And what John is trying to do here is to magnify Jesus. He's trying to magnify Jesus and to show us just how great he actually is. He is so great that all of his words and all of his deeds that are recorded in this book is but a mere teaser of who he actually is and, and of what he actually did. That Jesus is not just the obedient son. He is not just the risen Lord. He is the incarnate word. He is the incarnate word of God by whom all things were made. He is the creator of all things. He is God himself. He is the great I am, as, he is, as John has emphasized in this gospel time and time 
Again, He is the great God Himself, and we are to acknowledge, and we are called to behold Him in all of His greatness. And once we see that, once, we, once His greatness is actually apparent to us, what it does is that we are actually being humble. It actually humbles us as we come before Him, as we come before the great God of the universe, and we recognize that He alone is God, and we are not. Now, we might wish that we had everything written down so that we can actually read about them. Can you imagine how many books there, there will be, you know, if all of these things were written? And perhaps, you know, this would satisfy all of the book geeks and all of the bookworms, you know, in our midst. Yes, I'm looking at you guys from the Calvinist Book Club. But that's all we need, isn't it? What John has given to us in this gospel is what we need to know and what is needed above all things relates to our salvation. And it's not just the Gospel of John. The whole of Scripture that has been given to us, the life-giving Word, speaks clearly about what is needed for us to be saved. On the Westminster Confession of Faith, a confessional document that we subscribe to actually tells us in chapter 1, paragraph 7, that those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded in Scripture itself. So what is necessary for us to know for our salvation is clearly described for us in Scripture, that God has created all things. He has made all things good, but because of the fall, because of the, our disobedience, we, all of us, we are now sinners. All of us, we are now unrighteous before God. But God didn't leave us to, to ourselves. He loved us so much that He gave us His only begotten Son. And He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again from the dead for us. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He will come again in His second coming. And what we are called to do is to trust in Him and to have faith in Him. And we are called to follow Him all the days of our lives. All of these things, all of these things have been clearly written for us in Scripture. And we may not have everything. We might wish that we have all of these things written down, everything that Jesus said and did written down for us. But we have enough. We have enough for our salvation. We have been told sufficiently and clearly who we should follow. And we are called to follow Jesus Christ. Now, J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, he made these concluding remarks on these verses. This is what he said. We may well be humble when we think how ignorant we are and how little we comprehend of the treasures which this gospel contains. But we may well be thankful when we reflect how clear and plain is the instruction which it gives us about the way of salvation. So we are to come before Jesus as described in the Gospel of John with humility and gratitude. There's a humble posture that we are called to adopt because we are coming before the great God of the universe. We are coming before the incarnate Word Himself. But at the same time, there's a sense of gratitude that we are called to have as well. We are called to be grateful for what Jesus has done for us and in showing us the way of salvation. The Apostle John didn't leave us with a record of every single thing that Jesus said or did in these 21 chapters. And perhaps someday 
will have access to all of that and will have the whole of eternity to hear and to marvel at what Jesus did. But as John reminded us back in chapter 20, he wrote enough so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus is the one that we're called to believe in. He is the one that we are called to love. And we serve Jesus because he has first served. As Mark 10, 45 reminds us, Christ came not to be served, but to serve. We serve a Savior who did not remain distant from our world, but rather we serve a Savior who came down to our world and took on the form of a servant himself. He loved us so much that he would even lay down his life and serve to the very end. So brothers and sisters, have you experienced his divine love? And if you have, does it compel you to serve the one who gave up his life so that we may have eternal life? Does it compel you to love the body of Christ and to love one another? And as we draw this sermon and this sermon series to a close, let us keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus. Let us behold him in all of his greatness and let us serve him with gladness and let us grow in our love for him and for his people. And may that be the case, not just for today, not just for the coming week, but all the days of our lives as we look forward to the day when we shall see our Lord and Savior face to face forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your immeasurable grace in Jesus Christ. And Father, no words are ever enough to thank you for the treasures that are hidden in Christ. Father, we thank you for making the message of the gospel so wonderfully clear to each one of us. And Father, would you lead us to humility before the greatness of Christ. Lead us to gratitude for what Christ has done with his life and with his death and with his resurrection. And Father, as we reflect on your love that is shown in the giving of your Son, Father, may you deepen our love for you and may you deepen our love for one another. And Father, will you prepare each one of our hearts now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And Father, I pray that we will indeed rejoice in the meal that we are, going, that we are about to receive and that we will celebrate what Christ has done for us, what he is doing right now, and what he will do when he comes again. And so hear us, Father, Lord, and would you bless us as we bring our prayers before you. And we pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever be praised. Amen. I have no time now.